Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Senegal's response to COVID-19 has been exemplary. What's going right? And Mauritius is reeling from a devastating oil spill. How has the spill ignited pre-existing economic and political grievances? Plus, we discuss COVID-19's impact on Africa's elderly and individuals living with non-communicable diseases, or NCDs. Is there a private sector approach to care for these neglected populations? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Senegal's management of the COVID-19 pandemic has been one of the region's quiet successes. What has been the secret to Senegal's response? Joining me to discuss Senegal and other topics are Rumbi Chakamba, a freelance journalist based in Southern Africa, Nick Pereira, founder, director, and chief executive officer of the Africa Healthcare Network, and Nia Prier, senior communications advisor for Prosper Africa. So in August, many casual observers were surprised to see Senegal rank number two out of 36 country in foreign policies COVID-19 global response index, just behind New Zealand. Senegal has the largest rate of recovery in patients infected with the coronavirus in Africa, the third in the world ahead of countries like the United States and France. And while it has a tiny health budget compared to those countries, it has a wealth of experience in dealing with infectious diseases and outbreaks. And it spurred this rethink in many circles about the continent's response, which many people at the outset thought would be dismal. Now, Rumbi, you wrote this fantastic article for DevX entitled, How Senegal Has Set the Standard on COVID-19. What is Senegal doing and why is it working? Uh, Well, from almost all the health experts that I was speaking to, the first thing that they mentioned was acting early. In addition to that, they'd also gained quite a lot of experience from the Ebola pandemic in 2014. So they had this almost like five years worth of experience that they were sitting on, which helped quite a lot. And I think in addition to that, they had these structures that they had put in place from the Ebola pandemic, which were which have gone quite to use in the COVID-19 pandemic as well. And there's been great communication, I think, great communication from the health experts as leading the fight as well as the government. And in addition to that, Lucille Imboa, who is a WHO representative there, also spoke a lot about reviewing the work that they're doing. So they're constantly reviewing the work that they're doing and their strategies to see what's working, what's not, and adapting to the pandemic as they go. Yeah, what, what I always think about here is leadership. I mean, this is what makes a huge difference in any country's response. And President Macky Sall, as you said, not only effectively communicated to the public, he walked the walk self-quarantined in June after coming in contact with someone who was infected. And I mean, the whole point of transparency is that your leaders are doing what they tell their public to do. And USA Today reporter Deidre Shigreen interviewed me for this piece. She also quoted Senegal's Health Emergency Operations Center director, Dr. Bosa. And he said, if we have six people who died, we say it. If we have one person who died, we say it. And I think that You know, we can look at Botswana and Mauritius and other countries that have done that. But leadership and transparency are so critical in the COVID response, in addition to having, you know, the technical know-how and the testing, et cetera. Nina, you and I are going to talk a little later about this joint event we did in Miami. But I thought you wanted to share some reflections on our recent engagement with the Senegalese government on the healthcare sector. 
What did you take away from the officials we met? I mean, it was virtual, but still, what what did you learn uh, about how they're thinking about the health care sector and particularly what that partnership between Senegal and the United States government is? Thanks, Jed. You know, I think the big takeaway for me is that there are some really strong opportunities for trade and investment between the U.S. and Senegal in the healthcare sector and, and also other sectors, and that both of our governments are working really closely together to help businesses advance those opportunities. And as I know we'll talk about more later, I work for Prosper Africa, which is the U.S. government initiative to increase trade and investment between the U.S. and Africa. And I think what came through so loud and clear to me in our discussion is that we're going to be most effective meeting Prosper Africa's goals in countries where we have willing government partners. And that's exactly what we have in Senegal, where the government has received marching orders from top leadership to prioritize trade and investment with the United States. And that's enabled the U.S. Embassy deal team in Dakar under the leadership of Ambassador Mashingi to deliver some real impact. And we heard a bit about that impact during our discussion. For example, John Nevergol, who's the CEO of the ABD Investment Group based here in the United States, he spoke about how this government support has helped them to advance a $300 million financing facility with Senegal. They signed an MOU with Senegal back in February, and John spoke about how helpful it was to have Secretary Pompeo and Minister Ott literally at the table with them for the signing ceremony. And, you know, I realize February feels like a lifetime ago. COVID has certainly brought with it myriad challenges, including economic challenges. But what we heard from John and others in that discussion is that it's also opened up uh, some new opportunities and, and fast forwarded others in the healthcare sector in particular. And John spoke about how that financing facility that they set up is actually moving forward more quickly than he had expected with a focus on building up primary healthcare infrastructure in Senegal. And, you know, a, a deal like that is really just a win-win. It's, it's what we really look for with Prosper Africa. It's a lucrative investment for that investment firm, but it's also going to have a positive social impact in Senegal. Yeah, it's not surprising to me that a country that has strong leadership, that's transparent, not only is doing well on responding to COVID, but also is a place for U.S. businesses want to invest in, right? Like these things are not separate. Uh, they are self-reinforcing. Rumbi, I have this mission, though, and I, I hope you'll help me because there's this impression of a failed or failing African response. And I think your article goes a long way in maybe changing that perspective. But I think we should be doing more. And there's a number of countries. We talked about Senegal and Botswana and Mauritius. Let me just add Ghana and South Africa and Cabo Verde. These countries are putting in the hard work to manage the health threat that COVID poses. And yet, we rarely talk about them in the same breath as Taiwan or South Korea or New Zealand. How do we change that narrative? What are the things that we need to do to put African countries in the pantheon of, of good responders to this you know, challenging pandemic? I actually share the same mission as well. You know, when we spoke about the story with my editors, one of the biggest setting points was that it's a positive story. Um, and when we look at the COVID coverage as well as coverage of Africa, a lot of stories that come out of there are negative stories. So it was really important for us to sort of show like the positive side as well. It's lovely that foreign policy like uh, looked at the Senegal situation and they credited them, but it's very important that the stories start to come out of Africa and hopefully everyone also pick up on that because there's a lot of good work going on in Africa. I'm based in Botswana and the 
response was basically the same as Senegal, sort of following the same steps as Senegal with that transparency, with that leadership. So it's really wonderful for us to see this. But I have to warn that every health ex expert that I talk to always gives a disclaimer that we shouldn't count our chickens before they hatch. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so it's going, it's going well right now in a lot of countries and we're hoping that it continues to go well. And I think the important thing is that we continue covering these countries regionally as well as internationally. Yeah, speaking of Botswana, do I have this right? Does, has President Masisi self-quarantined five times already? Yes, he is on his fifth one and he might be going in for quite a lot more. <laughs> that's incredible. But that's exactly the kind of uh, role model that you want to see taking it seriously when there's been exposure. And I, I just want to give you one more compliment, Rumbi, which is, your article does talk a lot about how Senegal is doing well, but it's very clear that there are challenges ahead. And it's, it was you published it just before the big pilgrimage to Tuba, which was a challenge. Uh, just recently, Mackie Sal has talked about a bump in infections because of people coming to Senegal. And so we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can talk about what's working, but also talk about, as you said, challenges on the horizons or sort of imperfections. I think that's a truer story. Sometimes we want to have good stories and we want to get rid of all the bad elements of it. No, that is very true because I think um, as the pandemic is progressing, we're also learning. We're learning more about COVID-19 and the health experts are also learning more about COVID-19 as we go. So there have been a lot of bumps along the road in almost every single country's response. So I think it's always important to show that balanced perspective. And I'm actually still waiting to see what effect the pilgrimage will have on the number of infections that the country has. Let's shift to our second topic, which is Mauritius. We actually talk about Mauritius more than I would have expected when we started this podcast, but there's just a lot of interesting things happening in this country, some positive, some challenging geopolitical issues. And then this story about the Japanese ship, the MV Wakashio, that uh, ran aground in southeast Mauritius in June and caused a massive oil spill, relatively low compared to other big spills, but the damage is expected to be significant, in part because it was near several environmentally protected marine ecosystems. And it's also ignited this political storm in the country. And Nick, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the fallout. There have been protests of up to 100,000 people in Mauritius, which is pretty big when you think about a country that's only 1.3 million. Thousands protested in the capital of Mauritius on Saturday to demand an investigation into an oil spill from a Japanese ship and the mysterious death of at least 40 dolphins. Is this about just damage to the environment or something more? Thanks, Judd. So, realistically, historically, Mauritius has been considered a destination for investment, tourism, financial services hub, and especially for establishing holding companies such as our organization to help better access and invest uh, in the African continent. And when you look at it, purchasing power parity, the GDP is high-income country is 25,000, know, while standard is 12,000. I think the oil spill was really just the spark that uh, lit, lit the fire when you consider the effects the country had been facing over the past few years due to a variety of factors that were somewhat simmering in the background. And then uh, then comes along uh, COVID-19. I think 
the country recently had come under fire for its gaps in its anti-money laundering legislation and actions ensuring that investment capital coming in was not being misappropriated and really monitored in transparency. Also, the prime minister's administration had been crippled recently with allegations of corruption, uh, which really, really have not yet been addressed. And then there are other elements, such as disenchantment with the ruling elite political establishment and Hindu, Hindu nationalism. But all that compiled didn't do it. When COVID-19 came along, it's a services-driven economy, and obviously that had crippling effects, even though the government did a great job managing it. So this seemed more like the final straw, with effectively 10% of the population pouring out to uh, protest. So ultimately, the, the government's going to have to solve not just the environmental calamity, but really rebuild trust with the with the people, uh, in, in, including increased accountability and transparency. So a lot of the points you actually mentioned above with regards to COVID-19 management in Senegal and other countries. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that it's been really interesting for, you know, the general international coverage has just been about the oil spill. But if you scratch a little under the surface, you learn a lot more about some of the the issues that are happening in Mauritius. And and I, I think that probably Prime Minister Jugnaut will weather this this crisis. But it's important to talk about small countries, especially the democracies. And we wrote a piece about this back in September where we talked about not only Mauritius, but Cabo Verde and Sao Tome and Seychelles and about sort of what's going right, what's going wrong. And, and particularly these countries end up being uh, in really key waterways geostrategically. And I'm just going to reiterate what I said earlier with Rumbi is that we put countries into categories, right? There are successes and there are problems. And I don't think that's realistic. And in Mauritius, I think we're seeing very clearly there's this struggle that's happening between trade-offs around politics and the environment and other policies that is going to create new stressors. So something to watch in the months going forward. Let's move to our last topic, the paradigm for today. In October, Mario Harris and I published a new CSIS brief entitled A Wake-Up Call, what COVID-19 reveals about elderly and NCD care in sub-Saharan Africa. And this was done with the generous support of Gilead Sciences. The premise here is that COVID-19 shines a light on these two patient populations that are often neglected both by governments, but also foreign donors. And there's this paradox because people think of the continent as young. It is, right? Average of 19 years. And people think of it mainly in terms of this infectious disease challenges, such as HIV AIDS, which is also true. But they also miss these new trends. So let me just give you a couple of facts. The population of elderly people in sub-Saharan Africa is projected to reach 67 million by 2025 and 163 million by 2050. In other words, the number of older people is expected to grow by 260% in sub-Saharan Africa over the next 30 years. Switching to NCDs, non-communicable diseases, it's expected to increase by 27% in sub-Saharan Africa over the next 10 years. That's compared to a 17% increase globally. It's projected that NCDs will overtake infectious diseases as the major source of morbidity and mortality in sub-Saharan Africa by 2030. So I think that is often really counter to the way the the sort of the international imagination is about both Africa's demographics and its disease burden. And so we can say that elderly and NCD populations are growing faster in sub-Saharan Africa than anywhere else in the world. I just think that's astounding. And Nick, we owe you this huge debt of gratitude because 
we were able to chat with you and get insights about these populations for our paper. I was hoping you could just expand a little bit about the challenges of these two populations, what's specifically happening now with elderly Africans, people living with NCDs in the time of COVID. Absolutely. And so I think, yeah, COVID provided a bit of a root awakening globally as to the realities of NCDs and the disproportionate effect they have on the elderly. I think you succinctly mentioned all of this. As we think about the median age in Africa, the reality is also there's an elderly population that's emerging mainly because they have the luxury of living to that age as health systems are improving. And as NCDs predominantly affect the elderly, um, that layers on uh, to have a multiplier effect. So in the context of COVID, what we saw in at least the region of East Africa where I'm based, overwhelmingly the population at risk of medical complications and mortality rates was highest amongst the 65 plus population. And unsurprisingly, the predominant comorbidities were diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other non-communicable diseases. Uh, in the countries in which we operate, 80% of the mortality were patients with diabetes. And even starker, the percentage of those were the 65 plus population. So it was a rude awakening, and it was driven by a variety of factors. So for the past few decades, the focus for Africa has been on communicable diseases, such as HIV, AIDS, TB programs, malaria, focusing on reducing maternal mortality, infant mortality. And, and listen, yes, you can blame the governments of Africa for not focusing. But I would say this has been a focus of the World Health Organization for over a decade plus. And it isn't new news, but the governments and ministries of health are heavily donor reliant and, and funded. And so when you think about the agenda of aid, aid organizations focusing on, uh, on the above rather than non-communicable diseases, there was a misaligned incentives for the governments and these aid organizations. It's much harder to tie outcomes from programs addressing non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and hypertension versus those for HIV, AIDS, malaria, whether it's provision of medications, distribution of malaria and mosquito nets, et cetera. So uh, you can't just solely uh, criticize the sub-Saharan governments. Key thing also is family planning has not really come into place for the management of chronic conditions, such as diabetes and hypertension, because patients don't see the immediate effects. And these are silent killers where it, it happens over time. And by the time you realize it's, it's a problem, it, it's typically too late. In addition to that, you have to layer on a lack of patient adherence. And, and, and it's been the worst amongst the elderly. And there are cultural elements to that as well. They are in the elderly population is a neglected population. So in a doomsday sense, we're already on our way with NCD prevalence and COVID has shown the lack of the government's ability to address it in the near term. But in the long term, as we look at the increased prevalence of whether you call it national health insurance scheme or universal health care or health care coverage, there's going to be increased comprehensive coverage of chronic conditions to reduce the burden of patients. Additionally, private sector has to play a big role in addressing NCDs and treating these elderly populations. And ultimately, also, governments got to start engaging with international agencies to pushing to, and prioritize funding towards NCD initiatives. And, and finally, we need to be focusing on training uh, and education. We need to build ambassadors for change across the region, because that is the heart of everything in healthcare. Yeah, let me agree with a couple of things you said, Nick. I don't blame both governments and donors, it's just the reality is that there is a shift in terms of the demographics and the disease population or the disease burden uh, that didn't exist maybe 10 or 20 years ago. And so I think what you're saying, what our paper's saying is that let's take a step back and let's look at what's changing on the continent. And then how do we, I think you rightly put it, broaden our interventions so that we are addressing both NCDs and non-NCDs. And then I agree that 
health education is so critical here to talk to people about what a healthy lifestyle is like and some of the challenges or the complications of these diseases as the population gets older and older. And one of the places that probably there's a lot of work that could be done, certainly we're having a moment here in the United States thinking about it, is nursing homes and the challenges of COVID-19 in nursing homes. Rumbi, you did this story about Southern African nursing homes run by the Catholic Church and Charities, and this was for the Global Sisters Report. In the process of researching your story, what did you uncover about how the elderly are faring during the pandemic? Um, so early on in the pandemic, I managed to speak to some sisters who um, actually run a hospice. So this isn't a long-term care facility, but the majority of their patients are the elderly. And what they decided to do uh, when the pandemic hit was they decided that no one's going to come in and no one's going to come out. No one's coming in because they are a community-based organization. They actually run from a very small village and usually they get referrals from villages. Someone will just say, you have a problem, go and see the sisters instead of getting referrals from like the public health system. So they decided because of the pandemic, they're unable to test people. They're not going to allow anyone to come in. They're waiting on referrals. So they weren't sort of registering any patients. And then when they decided that no one is going to go out, that sort of speaks to the neglect that you spoke about earlier. Basically, they decided they're not going to send any of their patients home because they were afraid that if they did send them home, they might then become ill and they felt like they would feel responsible if that was to happen. So in Africa, what I've realized from my research and also from talking to the sisters is that the abandonment of long-term care usually lies with the family. We don't have nursing homes to speak of. It's, uh, it's not in the culture, it's not in our health systems and whatnot. So the burden of care largely lies on families. And what they discovered when they were in the process of setting up their hospice and whatnot is that this care is not always the best care for their patients. So they would go to homes and they would know that there's a patient suffering from maybe a, a non-communicable disease there. And they'll find that they have, there's a child taking care of this patient instead of anyone who's elderly to sort of provide that supervision. So for that reason, they decided that they were not going to allow any of their patients to leave the hospice until such a time that they felt it was safer to do so. When we were doing our research, Rumbi, we saw that, um, you know, there's there's more nursing homes or these sort of facilities in Southern Africa, particularly South Africa. Is this a combination of just culturally Southern Africa plus urbanization or where you found nursing homes or sort of elderly care facilities, even if it's a small minority? Like, are there places where this is growing as a as a sector? I think eventually it'll just have to grow. I think it's a result of urbanization. Culturally, I would say it's unacceptable for you to sort of um, send your parents to a facility for them to be taken off, a care of. That's shunned upon. So I would say it's also urbanization because you find in the rural areas, there'll be none of that. If someone is home, they're elderly, they need to stay within that environment and uh, someone is supposed to take care of them. And this burden usually lies on women or children to be the ones to be the caregivers. But it's usually, it's, it's something that's, I guess, we're growing into as a continent. But culturally, for most people, it's still unacceptable. Well, culturally, for my family, I would be in a lot of trouble. My parents have been very clear with me that they're definitely not going to a home. They're going to have to live with one of us. 
So I understand a little bit of that. In the brief, we talked about the implications of this growing population. And we talked, as you just mentioned, Ruby, we talked a little bit about intergenerational tension that could come from this as well. But most importantly, we talked about the opportunities. Nick and I already talked about the importance of broadening the health intervention so that it's touching you know, both infectious disease population, malaria and TB, as well as NCDs and the elderly. We also talked in this paper about recruiting champions. African leaders are of an elderly age, and so they're more vulnerable uh, to this disease. And maybe there's an opportunity here to get them to be champions and to push for greater reforms around pensions and healthcare and, and, and facilities. And then I think there's a number of opportunities here to exchange best practices with other countries that have core competencies, particularly countries like Japan that already has an elderly population and has been thinking about uh, these sort of issues. But I think where I want to focus the rest of the podcast is, is one of our recommendations around private sector engagement, where Nick and Nina are certainly well-placed to talk about. Nina, Prosper Africa, as you already mentioned, is about increasing two-way trade. And I think you and I believe that U.S. companies are really primed to help in this sector. Can you talk a little bit about, first of all, what you and I are doing with respect to stakeholders in Miami and Cape Town and Dakar in that last event? And where do you see the opportunities for the healthcare sector? So yeah, Prosper Africa is a whole of government initiative, and it brings together and really leverages all of the U.S. government trade and investment support services and resources to help U.S. and African companies do business. And in Prosper Africa's first year, we directly supported more than 280 deals to close across more than 30 African countries for a total value of over $22 billion. We are building on that momentum now and and poised to do much more. But a core challenge for us remains that there are a lot of companies across uh, the U.S. as well as investors that aren't actively seeking out opportunities to do business in Africa because they think it's too risky. And we find that a lot of folks are thinking of a perceived Africa of, say, 10 to 15 years ago, rather than the real African markets of today and, and maybe even more importantly, the African markets of tomorrow. So we're committed to reaching out to U.S. businesses and investors to help raise awareness of the opportunities that are out there and and to do it in a way that you've said so well, Judd, doesn't uh, gloss over the real constraints that are also out there. And I think we want to show that that the U.S. government is prioritizing trade and investment with Africa, that we are at the table and, and that we come with a robust toolkit that businesses can use to mitigate the real risks, unlock the real constraints so that they can maximize the opportunities. And that's why we're just so excited to be partnering with you and CSIS to hold a series of events where we get to do just that. And uh, for our event series, we're focusing in on uh, companies in some key U.S. cities and some key sectors so that we can really dive in together and, and have some substantive conversation. We kicked off our event last month with an event focused on Miami and opportunities in African uh, healthcare markets. And we brought Miami-based businesses together with African businesses, policymakers, and U.S. government officials, focusing in on Dakar and Cape Town so that we could really build on the sister city's relationship with Miami. There's so much I want to say about the event, but I think, you know, really key takeaway for me is that our work has to begin by building these kinds of connections, by doing it person to person, 
business to business, and in the case of our series, city to city. It was just a real pleasure to listen to you, Nick, and, and others on the line problem solve together and, and to do it with a team of U.S. government officials there from, from across the U.S. government, including the New International Development Finance Corporation, the Department of State, USAID, and more so that we could listen and, and respond where we could be of use. And uh, we're really looking forward to continuing those conversations through the rest of our series uh, with you, Judd, and I think many more engagements in the coming weeks and months. Thanks, Anita. You know, sometimes I think we need our own version of NPR's How I Built This, just to let companies and other stakeholders hear how you are successful in Africa. And then again, you know, is it's very clear there's a lot of warts and challenges and opportunities at the same time. And, you know, for every two steps forward, there may be a step back, but that's not Africa specific, that is the way business is done, whether you're in Omaha or Ouagadougou. And I think, you know, Nick, your company is doing the hard work of being successful in Africa, specifically in the health sector. And so I thought you could tell us a little bit about how you see investment opportunities in the health sector and with respect to elderly and NCD populations. And then as you did in our event, what advice should you be giving to both U.S. and African companies to succeed here? Yeah, I think Nina captured a, a lot of the broad concepts. For, for our organization, I think number one, especially for large multinationals, U.S.-based organizations looking to enter Africa or invest, we have to be spinning and telling these positive stories. But at a high level, what I look at is okay, there's a billion-plus population, uh, rapidly growing population, increased urbanization, and tie that into the fact that there is a movement towards universal health coverage, including these national health insurance schemes, which I think are creating and building a, a huge underserved population where U.S. companies could get involved. For us, we've looked a lot at specialized services, focusing on non-clinical diseases, especially areas where there is human capital constraints and where expertise from the U.S. can come in to help kind of bridge some of those gaps. So whether that's oncology, kidney disease, improved diagnostics and screening, cardiovascular disease programs, but ultimately this all has to be done with affordable cost solutions in the region, using technologies that can work in, in the African context and also be serviced and maintained. The reality is every technology that works in the Western world cannot just be replicated, but there is innovation that can happen in the U.S. and then be applied. And there are a lot of these organizations now focusing on that. I think at a really high level, we need to focus on integrated care for these patient populations. We can't repeat the, the mistakes that more developed countries have made. And I think a lot of large uh, investment organizations and U.S. companies uh, in, in the healthcare space have, have attempted to do this in the U.S. and could replicate these models in Africa. The only difference is not yet has, has someone really figured out how to create a decentralized healthcare solution that can travel across many cities and countries in sub-Saharan Africa. For me, in the end, investing in human capital has got to be priority number one, such that patients don't have to travel abroad any longer for medical care. So if you build the human capital, and it goes back to Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. Building the capacity in these countries will allow you to then bring in the medical equipment such that you can create these kind of health cities for specialized services and ultimately better serve the population. I want to thank my guests, uh, Rumbi, Nina, and Nick for joining us. We will have more on the CSIS Prosper Africa engagements. Follow our website. We'll put links to some of Rumbi's articles and some of the ones that I've mentioned. And we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.